0: Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams,
1: and I'm Gavin McIntyre. Today, we're talking about the ways the holidays are affected this year by the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: From religious services to our dinner tables, things are going to look different this year as the virus continues to spread in our communities. We'll talk more about those examples later in the show. But first, we have a story about how going home for the holidays has become much more complicated.
2: My name is Thomas DeVelli and I am the politics and military reporter here at The Post and Courier.
0: So you were at Columbia's airport last week when trainees from Fort Jackson were getting ready to fly home for the holiday. Can you just describe what you saw?
2: Fort Jackson is the Army's largest training base in the United States. Uh, They churn out thousands of uh, soldiers every single year. They're one of the largest bases, uh, certainly in South Carolina, and they basically turn citizens into soldiers. So basic training uh, for 10 weeks takes place there. And just like everyone else, they need to go home for the holidays as well. But it's already a complicated thing getting thousands of soldiers to the airport to the destination they need to be at but then you throw in a global pandemic into the mix and it certainly makes it more difficult so what i saw was these buses pulling up kind of like you were at a greyhound bus station and then immediately the doors open and in the most organized fashion uh hundreds of men and women in uniform, wearing camouflage masks, coming out with the most baggage I've ever seen. Uh, you know, I typically travel just a carry on. These people had giant green military duffel bags, backpacks, everything, because they have basically packed up their whole life to go to Fort Jackson. And what we saw was we saw them flooding into the airport, standing in line, trying to social distance. Um and it was really kind of funny to see normal passengers coming in through uh, the Columbia airport and then looking and just seeing a, a literal army uh, right there by baggage claim. So you see them, uh, you know, waiting. And at the same time, the army's trying to make this festive for them, right? I mean, these these soldiers have been through 10 weeks of rigorous training. But then you see volunteers from the USO wearing Santa hats, like giving them cookies and And try to, like, brighten their spirits up and everything like that. Uh, It's kind of a surreal scene at at first.
0: Sending 6,000 soldiers home for the holidays has to come with some major logistical challenges even during a normal year. But, of course, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. What were some of the things that they did to try to do this
2: safely? Well, that's a very good point. Uh, when This is something that happens every year, of course, and typically they just flood the airport on one day. So you'll have thousands of soldiers uh, coming to the Columbia Metropolitan Airport and kind of just treating it like individual tickets. You know, they go to their respective terminal gates and then they fly out. This, however, during a pandemic uh, became much more uh, logistically difficult. So they actually staggered it out over a couple of days. So they weren't just swamping the airport with a giant crowd of soldiers.
1: That's really interesting. I remember uh, last year, I actually covered um, the troops leaving Fort Jackson when I was a staff photographer at the state newspaper in Columbia and seeing all these, you know, basic trainees packed into this gym, thousands of troops just going in and out, in and out. And then hearing now how it's this staggered process is really interesting to hear, so when they bring them back, will it also be a staggered process? How will they go? Will they come back all at once?
2: Well, it's it's pretty interesting, Gavin. I think that there's, uh, you know, they're they're staggering them out, but a lot of them aren't going to actually be coming back. So some of these uh, soldiers have graduated from basic training. They're going to fly home, see their families, get a good home cooked meal. And then they're going to go to their next level of training, which could be at an, any number of bases across the country. So we're going to see a good amount of them travel to places like Fort Leonard uh, Missouri, uh, Fort Knox in Kentucky, all sorts of different places to get additional training. Um, and then some of them will come back, but that will also be, like you said, on a staggered schedule as well. So just like they had a staggered arrival, they'll have a staggered, uh, you know, uh, coming back in to to Fort Jackson as well.
0: We we know that that several thousand soldiers are going to, to go home for the holidays. Is there anyone who isn't able to go home? Is there, Are there any who are staying at Fort Jackson over the holidays?
2: That's a very good point. Also, there's about 200 or so soldiers who are staying at the base. And this is for a variety of reasons. It could be um, that they've tested positive for, for COVID and they're isolating right now. Some of them, it's uh, financial reasons they can't go home. Uh, and some of them just you know, want to hang out at, at Fort Jackson, and uh, it's really interesting because the Army really much so wants to build a culture, kind of a family atmosphere, if possible. It's part of you know making young soldiers trust, uh, you know, the Department of Defense and and realizing that they might want to spend their lives in the military. So they try to make a a pretty like uh, interesting environment on base. You know, they feed them a huge home-cooked holiday meal. Um, But then they also have all these other random activities planned for them. They've got putt-putt golf. They go bowling. They get into a bus, and they drive down to see Christmas lights in Columbia. Um, But they also, you know, being stuck there at the base, they also train during the day. But at night, they get to have a little bit of fun.
1: And the basic trainings you spoke to uh, at the airport. How are they feeling? I had
2: the opportunity to talk to several soldiers at Fort Jackson, including Private Keisha Woolley. She's a 22-year-old from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and she just graduated basic training uh, literally hours before she came to the airport. And she's just excited to, to see her family and, and kind of do all the traditional Christmas stuff. Just,
3: you know, decorating the house and making the cheese. Oh, it doesn't really snow. We'll have the fake snowman in front of the house. I'm looking forward to decorating.
0: For our second story today, what local congregations are doing about Christmas. For many families in South Carolina, going to church is an important part of the holiday season. But this year, churches are weighing whether or not to have in-person worship services at all.
4: The holidays, in general, are always a time where people uh, really want to be around other church members. Christmas is, is especially important because it's such an important holiday for the Christian like community. And we had this conversation around Easter when the pandemic was first breaking out about whether churches should come together. Um, and now we're revisiting it later in the year. My name is Ricky Siafa Dennis Jr. and I cover uh, the city of North Charleston in addition to uh, the faith community, um, and the Low Country.
0: The question of, of what to do about indoor church services is not a new one. People have been talking about this all year and how to do that safely. But for the holidays, I mean, that's the time of year that a lot more people are going to church. So my first question is, are we going to see many indoor church services in Charleston?
4: There will be a handful of. Um of in-person worship services. Um, I've spoken with several services. Um, one uh, just for example is Northbridge uh Baptist Church just in West Ashley. They're planning to have indoor worship services. Um another one, Parkside, uh, is a Presbyterian church downtown, is planning as well. And Seacoast, um, and I actually saw on social media, they of course have like a facility that seats, you know, two thousand plus members. Um, but, but they're having indoor services as well, kind of kind of staggered. So um, there will be a handful of, of in-person options for folks. Uh, but what the churches are, are doing, those who are gathering indoors in person, um, is just operating at a 50% capacity. One, like Parkside, is even operating at a 20% seating capacity to still be able to keep folks um, kind of spread out. Of course, they're doing all of your standard things like tech, checking temperatures at the door, asking folks to wear masks if they're walking around. Um, but if they're seated, you know, some churches are allowing people to, to not keep their masks on, similar to what you do in a restaurant. Um, so those who are doing in-person options are, are, are trying to be safe. But, you know, it's just the holidays for, for these churches is just a hard thing for a lot of them to say, you know we're not having an in-person option because it's so important to a lot of people, um, and they want to have some sort of of sense of of community. So so they're still planning to they're still planning to move forward with their in-person gatherings. Now some of them who are doing in-person are also having kind of other options as well. So like Northbridge, who's planning to have in-person worship, they're the ones who did a, a live nativity scene. Um, like early this month. So folks were able to come out there and see, you know, the animals and baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and, and heard the Christmas message. So um, they're still trying to, you know, provide some other outlets for people who may not be comfortable with, with coming in person, but they still want to have that, that in-person option for for folks who um, are just, you know, hard pressed about being inside the sanctuary.
0: Do you know if any churches are looking to do things Outdoors, I know it's cooler this time of year, but also, is in Charleston one of the benefits we have is it's it's not that cold. You know, it's not like you're going to get snow on on Christmas. Do you know of any that are trying to take their services
4: outdoors? The trend that I've been seeing is that the only ones I've seen who are doing outdoor services are the ones who are also doing indoor services. Um, like the folks who are not doing indoor services, they don't appear to be coming together for, for worship at all. I mean, they're doing some other kind of creative things like taking Christmas goodies to people's doors and doing kind of drive-through deliveries as well. A lot of Amy churches have, have been doing that this month where people come in their cars and they get food and, and stuff like that. And there was a church in Mount Pleasant who was going to sick and shedding members and singing Christmas carols. So they're doing unique things like that, but, but, but the ones who are not gathering in person, they don't seem to be gathering at all. And their perspective is, in in the words of one pastor, kind of put it this way, is that they kind of see them saying, we're not coming together because we're looking out for your health as a way of ministry. So their way of kind of spreading peace and love and joy in the holiday season is by not coming together for worship service at all.
0: This has to be a really difficult decision for church leaders to make with churches that are that are opting for not gathering at all. I thought that was interesting that they said that that's kind of their form of ministry. But what about the churches that are going to gather? What are some of the things that, that they said to you in terms of, of why? You know, why is it important for them to still be together?
4: You're right. It really is a difficult decision, and for any pastor, you know, when, in having to decide whether or not to to come together is, is certainly something that they talk with other people in their church about. Particularly if they have like members who are like doctors and, and stuff like that. So, so it's something they take very seriously. But you know, like at, at Northbridge, pastor said to me, and I, I think what's really unique this year is the kind of year you know that we've had. So it's not that we just aren't. We haven't been in church, but it's like what has been what has caused us to not be able to go to church. So there's been a you know pandemic um, that has kept people isolated, and people are stressed about that. And then you have you know the the uh, race you know race relations between black and whites, and, and the protests that stem from the death of, of George Floyd um, at the hands of uh, white police officers. So it's just been so much like going on. So in Northbridge, the pastor was like, you know, it's just. You know, telling people that they cannot come to church is just another thing that you know will essentially just just drive someone into a deeper kind of sense of despair because you're you're almost taking that you know away from them. For those who are offering an in-person option, it, it's really about them, you know, just feeling like the church has a responsibility to provide kind of a communal atmosphere for people. In a time that has been extremely, extremely difficult, but you know, on the flip side, a similar argument is used for those who, who aren't gathering as well. Um, they, they they see them keeping people away from one another as a way to, to look out for their well being. But but yeah, you know, and, and there, there are scriptures in the Bible, the passages referred to that in Hebrews, where the writer says, uh, you know, don't forsake the assembling of your of yourselves. Uh, and a lot of pastors take that literally. That if there is any option that we have to to come together physically. That we have a role and a responsibility to to do that. And by not doing that, you know, we're essentially not doing what the church is supposed to do. You know, in the context of the kind of year that a lot of people have had of being just stressed out by the pandemic and all sorts of things, has has really forced a lot of churches to to provide that in person option for for people.
0: When we've said holiday church services, probably the first thing that comes to mind, especially this episode we're posting on December 24th is is Christmas, but especially in Charleston, there's another very important holiday coming up when it comes to gathering and being in, in churches, and that's that comes on New Year's Eve, and that's Watch Night services. Just first, for anyone who's not familiar, can you explain what a Watch Night service is?
4: Watch Night essentially is a celebration um, that kind of remembers the emancipation proclamation you know, enacted on, on January 1st, 1863. And so traditionally, it's kind of remembering how on the night before, you know, that New Year's Eve night, um, how breed Blacks who would come to, you know, to churches um, and enslaved Blacks who were all kind of anticipating the the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. So you know, hundreds of years later, uh, African-American churches come together on the night before the New Year to kind of remember um, that history, remember how their own ancestors were were enslaved and were um, waiting for, for liberation and, and for freedom. So, you know, in today's um, climate, that, that, that has still been practiced. And it's usually, you know... It might even be a, a service that's more packed, probably than than Christmas. But yeah, so so, but that's what that 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 whole Watch Night tradition is 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 all about. You know, just kind of reclaiming that history. And some, you know, churches are still planning to to do that. You know, with just online services. I know at least Marsh Street Baptist downtown is going to post, going to pre-record their service and and do it online. Um, and then there's been another church in Columbia who asked the state for an exemption to the 250 rule to to be able to host a a watch night service. So, but but just from my observations, um, it doesn't seem that um a lot of churches are are, are planning to do watch night. But you know, we'll I guess we'll wait to see if that if that ends up being the case. What will be, I, I think, the same is kind of the the theme, which is at least is what the pastor Mar Street said. You know, when you think about the pandemic and, and the virus, this is just. For Black people, this is just another kind of obstacle that, that that Black people have always you know had to deal with. So when you think about slavery, um, when you think about you know Jim Crow and the Civil Rights era and all of these things, and now we're dealing with the virus that is disproportionately impacting you know, African Americans, that idea of you know, we will overcome this in the same way we've overcome past obstacles. Um, it's going to be something that for Black churches who are hosting watch night services, I would imagine, will be that will be the message to to kind of provide some provide some hope because these are the same churches that you know a lot of them who aren't gathering in person because the virus is disproportionately impacting Black people. So. You know, it's just it's just another burden that the community is is, is having to to deal with and watch tonight. for those who will have it will will provide some sort of light at the end of the tunnel.
0: you're talking with with church leaders about these difficult decisions that they have to make, but in addition to, having to make those kinds of decisions or think through the logistics of how do we safely host a church service, um, these people are also supporting their congregations spiritually through a year that there's been so much loss and anxiety. And, and I'm wondering what you're hearing from them, kind of how are they getting through this time and how are they continuing to support those people?
4: Yeah. So, you know, I think just generally like speaking, I think a lot of pastors are just stressed out and like just tired. Just, you know, emotionally and spiritually, because, you know, a a lot of pastors have been telling me, you know, this is the hardest I've had to work like just in in ministry. I mean, this is, you know, um, doing a service online. Yeah. It's just you essentially it might be you and the camera, but but a lot of times it takes more preparation, more work to set up a virtual streaming and, and take it down. Um, it just takes more work than than versus you, you know, maybe showing up to a church and, and preaching, um, let alone the fact of having to communicate um with their membership in, in more in more ways and and, and ministering to the people in the midst of a pandemic. So um yeah just you know a, a lot of them have just been really just worn down just spiritually and emotionally. Um, and then some of them you know have their own like issues. So Reverend Rutledge at Circular um, and he's been you know, very public about the fact that he himself has underlying like health conditions, actually a lung disease, that if he were to get the virus, it would be very bad for him. So when the virus first kind of broke out earlier this year, he was very open and, and outspoken that, you know, their church would decide not to host in-person worship. And he talked about how he himself, you know, would, would be very, um you know, vulnerable um to the disease. So uh, he and his family have been especially kind of, you know, closed off. And that, of course, you know, has taken its toll on you know him and the family. Um, they did something interesting too. They actually um, every year they host what's called a blue Christmas. It's a service for people who are especially sad, like during the holidays. Um, maybe they've lost a loved one, you know, or any other reason that they just might feel down. So the service is kind of intention. Has this. Um, melancholy kind of aspect to it where they play the music in a monarchy and you know the the Christmas tree has this kind of blue lights and it's very somber and it just gives people kind of a space to to feel sad so they did that again this year his wife actually started that service several years ago um, but they did it again this year and he just kind of spoke to how you know that service is even more kind of relevant like you know this year with people just being you know spiritually weighed down and just surrounded by so much news of just death and anxiety and all of these kind of things. And that just, you know, kind of provided the members a space to be sad. But even he said, you know, it's it's it's, you know, one of his favorite services of the year because it even gives, you know, him an opportunity to kind of just, you know, be sad. And I think a lot of times in, in church, that space for pastors and for preachers to just kind of be sad is not always not always available. So, you know, him in addition to many others are You know just just kind of weighed down and and trying to you know get through it just like everybody else because they're, they're dealing with the virus like like everyone else
0: we have one more story for you before we wrap up today with so many coronavirus deaths in the u.s it can be difficult to actually comprehend the numbers at the holidays, families who lost a loved one during this pandemic will experience that loss in very tangible ways. One of those is at the holiday dinner table.
3: My name is Hannah Raskin. I'm the feed editor and chief critic at The and Courier.
0: So what gave you the idea to write this story?
3: This is one of those stories that came to me um, in a very direct way. Um, I had read a story that my friend Andrea Wynn had written for Eating Well, and not reading it looking for story material but the story she had written was about comfort food why it's become so important to people this year and specifically she was writing about food that grandmothers make and that that's what everyone's craving um she had written that because at the magazine eating well which i mentioned um they were getting more and more searches for exactly that phrase like something like Grandma May, you know, weather, and then X, you know, chili, cookies, whatever it is, people are really fixated on their grandmother's cooking. It's been a really tough year for everybody. It's been a really tough year. Um, and I think what's been tough throughout is there has been a feeling from those who, like all of us, are frustrated with coronavirus and wish it would go away. Um, there is very much a feeling like, well, this is an illness of the elderly. Um, and of course, it is true that death rates are higher In older populations, but along with that saying, this is of the elderly, there's sort of this undercurrent that, you know, when you reach a certain age in our society, you don't matter as much, but one, one of the things that people are never dismissive about are older people's cooking. People are very nostalgic about what their grandmother makes. It really seems like a connection that that everybody has. Not only will this person be absent from the the family's holiday celebration, but so will the dish that they always contribute. Food is so meaningful and the taste is so palpable. Um, That seemed like the connection point. So that's what I wanted to do was to get the, the recipes for these dishes that will not be served this year, or if they are will have to be recreated by relatives who realize they can never make them quite the same way as their late relative did.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I guess the next question that you probably had to answer yourself was, how do I tell that
3: story? Yeah. So I think all of us who have been reporting this year know that it's been really, really hard to connect with victims and the families of victims because for a number of reasons, and it was was interesting learning more and getting more involved in these communities. So first thing I did, of course, was search every obituary in South Carolina for any mention of coronavirus. And they're not all that many and the reason why i had the opportunity to talk to some clergy members who said that they have never seen a grieving or mourning process quite like that which surrounds covid and part of that is because there is this kind of shame and guilt lingering um partly like we could have done more i suppose i think it's just sort of there remains a stigma about this disease which is really unfortunate so part of it's the shame and guilt. The other thing that has inhibited and kind of hung over people's grieving process um, during COVID is there are a subset of people who believe COVID is a hoax and they will harass the survivors of anyone. You know, if you put in your OBET that it was because of COVID, they will harass these people who are grieving the loss of a loved one, which is really horrible. So for that reason, um, it rarely shows up in OBETs. So I did then contact all of the, like, um, a lot of the hospitals and insurance companies, many of whom have bereavement programs as well as funeral homes. That got me nowhere uh, for all the reasons I just said. Um, what was most useful to me in connecting with people in South Carolina was going through all the many Facebook groups which have come up to for support. So, yeah, it, it was a really long process, um, especially because, you know, I was specific to South Carolina and there is more openness in other places. A lot of these, you know, Facebook groups are, are dominated by folks in New York. Surprisingly, when I was able to figure out um, who kind of fit the bill for my reporting, People were really into it, and they really, really liked the idea. So from once I was able to identify the people, it went pretty smoothly.
0: Once you got to that point and were able to to talk to family members and share this idea, tell me more about those conversations and, and what happened as those family members started to recount the memories and those strong memories, like you said, that are associated with food.
3: They were great conversations, and people were really happy to talk about it. And I think it's important to note that in the case of of all all four people that I was talking to, it didn't mean that they were great cooks, necessarily, especially so I had two men, two women, and the two men were really proud of their cooking. but their relatives were like, no yeah, that was that was his you know his way of cooking, And so it was the diversity and the individuality that I thought made it really important, not just that it was like the best food ever created, it, it expressed the person and what the person meant to his or her family.
0: Have you received any any response either from the families or from other people who found these recipes? And have you heard from anyone who had any thoughts?
3: Yeah, this story really resonated. I don't even want to say the story I don't want to take credit for. I think it was just the headline. Like it was just the notion of these dishes not being on the table. I heard from many, many people who said they started crying just at the headline. It's just that it's just that idea. So it's not anything I did special in the reporting. It's Just that notion that I don't think had been really thought about previously.
0: Why do you think that resonated with people so much?
3: Yeah, I think just that everyone can relate to it. I I don't know. I mean, it still resonates with me. Like, I am just now getting to the point where, like, I don't start crying talking about it. There's something about just, I think, pinpointing the loss in such a a real and measurable way. I, I, I think something there. I really just hope, I mean, really just hope to change one other person's perspective, no one specifically, but knowing, I mean, covering the restaurant industry means I deal with a lot of people, as I said, don't believe in the coronavirus, um, don't have any respect for it, you know, don't believe that it can really inflict this kind of harm. So, that's my greatest hope is that just one? literally if one person looks at this story and decides, well, I'm not going to go to a big party on New Year's Eve or I'm not going to go to, you know, out for dinner on Christmas Eve, then I feel like that's, that's probably done his job.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with our last Understand SC episode of 2020. We'll be looking back at some of the newsmakers of the year. We hope you'll subscribe and join us.
1: To get your episodes in your inbox every week, you can sign up for our newsletter. We'll include the link in our show notes, and it's always on the Understand SC homepage.
0: If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, we would love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at UnderstandSC and have a safe and happy holiday. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandSC at com or on Twitter at understandSC. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.